Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A lot going on here today in the markets. What exactly and why? Uh, let's ask Alberto Gallo. He's a fund manager, uh, portfolio manager, of course, with uh, Algebras Investments. And uh, Alberto, um, good is morning. There, is there anything you can see that is? Uh, let's put it this way: Have we seen a psychological change, some sort of mood change in the markets, or just maybe kind of a one-off thing today? I think there is a an exit from the buy everything which was following the, the Fed whole decision that created a big euphoria, we're coming back to fundamental problems. So in Europe, we have too many banks. Deutsche has got a, the wrong business model and is going to take a long, long time to adjust it. It's not insolvent, uh, but they need to raise a lot of capital. The U.S. fine of $14 billion is equal to their market cap uh, today. Um, so there's a lot of capital to be raised. Business models need to be changed. Uh, nothing stops the stock from going lower until these things are done. Um, so European banks, um, however, the rest of the banking system has liquidity and has already done a lot of adjustments. Uh, in Spain, uh, in Italy, they're happening. So I don't think it's a systemic uh, issue. In the U.S., I think, you know, tonight we're going to see a shift. I think um, I've seen Brexit when I was in the U.K., and uh, we've seen Berlusconi in Italy. We've seen a lot of similar stories, and people in New York, people in San Francisco, you know, underestimate the impact of, of gut politics, of, of politics that are not based on facts. So I think that's going to be – that's going to create international uh, volatility. So you think we're seeing some volatility – based on the U.S. political debate tonight? I think that's going to happen. It's going to be potentially stronger dollar, uh, but also bad for treasuries because some of the policies are very stimulative, you know, cuts in taxes, a lot of infrastructure spending, and, um, and protectionism against Mexico and China. So for emerging markets, it's not really good. Well, do you think uh, that if Donald Trump is perceived to win the debate tonight, that has a major impact on trading tomorrow? I think on currencies, it's going to have an impact. I think on the Treasury yield curve, um, it's not going to be a big negative for, for everything. Um, I think it's, it's an adjustment. Um, the markets have been looking at this event uh, in some areas, the Mexican peso mainly, and some of the U.S. stocks, uh, but not everyone has realized that the risk is there. So you have a moment where you actually say, "Okay, this is actually real," you know. And remember, you know, people who vote vote from everywhere, but the traders live in New York on the West Coast, and they have a diff they live a bit in a, in a bubble. And the same happened in London with Brexit. No one thought it would happen, but then it actually happened, and now we have to deal with it. I think, Tom, we're going to have to stay up and watch this thing. 
9 o'clock? John Tucker, who... Who we're, our coverage at seven p.m. and eight thirty. Nine, why nine o'clock? Is it to sell Budweiser? Yeah, you know, just, beer commercials. We get more people. Um, you know, across you, just, the country. you just proved Alberto's <laughs> Alberto's thesis. What time is it in San Francisco and Los well, that's Angeles? That's true. Fair. So you yeah. know, they want people to be able to watch out on the West Coast. We live okay. in a little New York bubble. Good here. morning, Bloomberg nine sixty, the Bay Area and the real world, unlike the bubble. That Michael McKee and I live in. Alberta, we, we look at the sum of the parts of a Monday morning. Futures negative 10, Dow futures negative 1. And part of it is a backdrop of financial Europe. That's your expertise, Spain, Italy, and such. What is the backdrop in Europe? Is, is there some stability? No, there is instability, uh, and it's getting worse. I think it's global, not only European. So there is there's a war uh, of negotiation between the UK and the EU. Uh, there's a war of fines between the U.S. and the EU with Deutsche Bank and Apple. You know, let, let's not forget that. And, you know, macro data in Europe is getting a little better. QE is slowly working, but it's not enough. You need infrastructure spending. You need the Juncker plan. They spent around $10 billion, so 0.1% of Eurozone GDP. Um, they say it's going to create 10 times more investment, but it's still extremely low. Remember, the U.S. had over 10% deficit when, when QE started. So... In Europe in particular, QE remains the only game in town. And you've got this political risk rising. Um, we've got the Italian referendum later this year. It's a 50-50 bet. So a lot of uncertainty uh, looming uh, around markets. Even though fundamentals are okay, people are afraid of taking a positive risk. The afraid is there. I mean, I mean, that's the perfect word for where we are is a tentativeness almost. What does the Deutsche Bank price signal to you? 10.75 now, better than it was an hour and a half ago. So the market cap of, the, of Deutsche Bank is similar to the, to the fine that the Department of Justice has asked. And uh, to me, there is nothing stopping the equity price from going lower unless there is a big change in their business model and obviously a capital raise. However, we need to draw a line around solvency, and the market is also telling you that solvency is not a big issue. You know, if you look at bonds, senior bonds, you know, they're still doing okay. So we're not in a Bear Stearns or in a Lehman situation. The problem is Deutsche Bank is very large. It's got no domestic market. German <coughs> banks are subsidized by the state, so you can't make money out of normal lending. Um, and so they need to really reinvent themselves. We have learned from other experiences like RBS, for example, or other banks, that it takes 10 years. It takes a very long time. And Germany in the end I, is going to have to intervene. Can they raise – I mean, not that you're doing an equity banker thing, but the stock is down 68% from spring of 2015 peaks. Can they go out and do a cash call right now? I mean, at any price they can. Obviously, that's the answer. But the, the dilution here has to be extraordinary. They can, I think they can raise capital, but I think it's better to change their business model at the same time because having a bank that just um, that, that generates a large part of their business through trading um, doesn't work anymore, especially if you have a balance sheet that's larger than your country. You've got to be smaller, you've got to be leaner, and you've got to have more capital. And the cost of capital is higher today, so you cannot do a lot of low-margin business. They used to do a lot of low-margin trading business, but now you actually pay for balance sheet, so you can, you can only do high-margin business. But Germany needs to also restructure the Landesbanken, the domestic, you know, local uh, credit institution, because those are subsidized. They lend at near zero, 
uh, and the state pays for it. And that's why Deutsche Bank cannot make money on their domestic market. We should notice, uh, note, Tom, that Deutsche Bank is trading at 10.745 euros right now, down another almost 6% this morning, and that is a new low. And uh, they're caught in, I don't want to say a doom loop, but it's kind of getting that way where people trade them down because they think they need to do a capital raise. And the more they trade them down, the more they're going to need to do a capital raise. So that's a stock we're going to keep an eye on throughout the day here on Bloomberg as uh, Deutsche Bank continues to struggle in the markets. Michael McKee, I want you to jump in here with Alberto Gallo of Algebras because it's really fortunate, that we, folks, we've got Michael McKee's weekend reading, which was on uh, covered interest parity. I mean, Mike, Mike, this is, I guess, what you do. I mean, on the weekends is you have to read obtuse papers from bored, BIS. And this is where Alberto Gallo is on liquidity as well. Mike, review this paper and why it's important for the new liquidity or lack of liquidity we're living in. Well, the, the Bank for International Settlements looked at something called covered interest parity, which very few people are going to understand. But it's a, sort of been thought of as an immutable law of the markets that the forward price and the spot price in any currency pair are going to be different, and the difference should equal the interest rate differential between the countries. And it's not happening anymore. Uh, ever since the financial crisis, there are, it's broken down in a lot of currency pairs. And Bank for International Settlements is suggesting it may be because people are trying to hedge more at a time when banks, because of regula regulation, are less interested in arbitraging away the differences. So you have this um, strange situation that suggests that there's a little bit less liquidity out there. And Alberto, we were talking earlier about this. Um, and you make a distinction between uh, funding liquidity and market liquidity. Yeah, so if you think about the funding liquidity, central banks are flooding the market with it, financial markets, not the economy. So if you are a bank uh, in Europe, you're not actually getting paid to borrow. You get paid 40 basis points, 0.4%. However, the problem is that credit risk, uh, the cost of capital, uh, balance sheets, are expensive, and so the cost of making these um, currency arbitrages is higher. So to one extent, the fact that current interest parity is not applying anymore is also a consequence of the fact that people are, again, more afraid of putting their money into an arbitrage relationship because there is some credit risk they, they associate with other financial institutions and also because there is a, a higher cost of balance sheet, a higher cost of capital. So all the businesses that were based on High volume, low margin trades like these ones are now struggling. You know, DB, Deutsche Bank being one of them. Um, and I don't think that's going to change until we have a leaner uh, and a stronger banking system. I think it's a symptom of this. Well, how do you get to a leaner and stronger banking system? I mean, uh, stronger, I presume, is underpinned by the regulation that increases capital. But what's leaner? I think, you know, Draghi talked about it. Um, it's, it's less banks, less costs, less branches. Uh, the capital is already there. You know, banks have raised in Europe over 500 billion um, capital since the over the last few years. So capital ratios are are good. There are some banks that are still weak, but overall they're good. The problem is business models, profitability. If you have negative interest rates, if the yield curve is very flat, banks don't make money. Banks borrow short term, lend medium term, and the, if the yield curve is flat, the profitability is not there. I mean, you've, I mean, not to get in the knitting, Alberto, but you've lived this. It's selected other banks as well. 
I understand banks challenging, and I don't have a lot of answers, except Mr. Cryan can observe seven other European models over the last nine years. May I suggest, after looking at those models, people would say, what are you waiting for? Am I wrong? I think he's doing it. But remember, like the people who were there before were in denial for a long time. Uh, and you know, he, Well, I don't fault Mr. Crane personally, but I mean, the stock price speaks volumes about the experience of Northern Rock, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at the top 20 European banks, their market cap is similar to the market cap of JP Morgan. So there is a very, very strong um, fear in the market about profitability and business models. Not solvency, but um, there needs to be a change. So a lot of the banks are linked to political institutions. You know, in Germany, banks are political. There's all the local banks that are connected to each state, and they're subsidized. And that's why change is very hard to to, to be implemented. It takes a long time to change banks' business well, models. You've been very quickly here. You've been courageous about buying Spain in the bottom, Greece in the bottom, etc. Is this a bottom for Deutsche Bank? No, I think the equity has a bit more downside until there is a clear uh, capital raising plan. I think also periphery spreads are uh, going to be volatile. You know, we've got the Italian referendum, we've got more uncertainty. Yeah. Okay, never enough time. Alberto Gallo, thank you so much. Market news of the day is that uh, there is some sort of unhappiness out there over what's going on, but uh, nobody really has a definitive answer to what it is. Uh, we're watching S&P futures off by 10 points, Dow futures by 89. In Europe, the stock 600 is off by 5, 1.4%. It's kind of market that uh, tells you Gary Schilling's in town. <laughs> Gary of oh, Gary Schilling on, Associates has, has been uh, <laughs> realistic. <laughs> <laughs> he calls it realistic. Others would call it pessimistic. Um, one day obviously doesn't mean anything, but in general, uh, are we seeing a turn in the sentiment, shall we say, about uh, com uh, uh, global economies and global markets? And uh, is this sort of a, the, the fall bringing leaves and markets <laughs> fall? There's certainly disappointment that it doesn't look like the economy and corporate earnings are going to pick up uh, as we go into the end of the year. Uh, but that's, that's uh, really been perennial. If you look back in this whole expansion that started <coughs> in the middle of 2009, there's been this constant drumbeat that the economy is going to revive rapid growth. And, of course, then that meant that the Fed was going to raise interest rates and everything is, everything is, uh, is going to be on the upside. But but the reality is, uh, you know, in my view, we're still working off a lot of the excess debt, uh, the excesses of the 80s and 90s. It's the age of deleveraging. And this process is, is still underway. And what's interesting about this, this has really spawned this winter of discontent, this, this uh, whole movement toward populism. Uh, we see that in, in Europe, Marie Le Pen leading the uh, National Front in France. We saw it with Bernie Sanders here and with Trump, of course, uh, people are mad as hell because most people in Western Europe and North America have had no growth in their purchasing power for over a decade, and they've rejected mainstream politicians and turned to the fringes. Now, I think ultimately this is going to result in a huge push for fiscal 
fiscal stimulus because monetary policy is impotent, uh, but it is a continuation of a, of, a, of a situation which for many people is just unacceptable. The uh, so so you you your debt you would tie what's going on here in the markets to the presidential race. Well, I I think it is, and and uh, you know one of the possibilities here that you say what's why have stocks held up? Why are PEs uh, as high as they are, and so on? It may be that that investors are beginning to anticipate big fiscal stimulus down the road. We won't know that until the new president and Congress are installed in January and they get their act together. But I think whoever wins, there probably is going to be a big movement. The two areas that we've earmarked <coughs> on this are, one, infrastructure spending, which both Democrats right. and Republicans right. can agree on. And the other one is military, which would be much more favored if the Republicans controlled Washington. Gary okay. Schilling, yes. once a year, you know how, like on radio folks, once a year, like you sip a cup of coffee and... It goes down wrong. Oh, are you dying? I just over? had that. That's yeah, it for 2016. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, in case it's, something it's never... happens to you, we've already lined up uh, uh, Gary's recommendation, that's Howard true. Beale. That's to, good. To replace you. Well, that's okay because <laughs> the, they got the surveillance <laughs> casket right out back line. Uh, we have Howard Beale standing by from the movie network <laughs> to uh, to fill in for Tom while he recovers from uh, swallowing some coffee the wrong way. I mean, it's bad enough you swallow coffee, Gary, but you swallow hot stuff the wrong way. It hurts. Gary Schilling is with us um, playing the role of Howard Beale right now. He's You're never mad. You're never no, mad no, at no, no. You're always you're always cheerful. <laughs> well, you know, cheerfully the, presenting. Yeah. Well, the mafia they say don't get don't get mad, just get even. <laughs> uh, we were talking earlier on uh, Bloomberg surveillance on television. Uh, the same thing we were talking with Alberto Gallo on about um, the changes in the way markets operate these days, and the fact that um, computers drive so much, and liquidity is down in a lot of areas. How much does that concern you, and how much does that affect? the real price of assets. Well, it, it, it does affect the price of assets, and there is a spillover of asset prices to the real economy, uh, the goods and services economy, a real wealth effect, for example, the idea if people have higher assets, then they are going to spend more money on, on goods and services. But those, those effects are much weaker than they used to be. Uh, I think a lot of that is because of the polarization of income. Income is, and assets have moved into the upper reaches. And if somebody there has four cars in his driveway, his por portfolio goes up, he's probably not going to buy a fifth. It doesn't make a, a lot of difference. Uh, but I think you have, to, you have to realize that in this whole expansion, ever since stocks <coughs> took off in March of 2009 and then the economy followed the middle of the year, You've had two worlds there. You've had a financial world out there. I called it the grand disconnect. You've had a financial world uh, which has really been driven by central bank money more than anything else, affecting stocks but other assets. And, then, and that's, been, that's been very strong on balance. And then the goods and services economy, you're still in this what I call the age of deleveraging. And you say, are those two worlds going to come together? And and, and I think they will eventually. But in the meanwhile, all the, the turmoil, the liquidity, all these other, they are important to certainly market participants. And there is a spillover effect. But I don't think it really addresses this central issue. And again, that's the, the Howard Beale issue. That's the people are mad as hell because they have had no increase in real purchasing power in over a decade. And 
for most people, <coughs> hey, the strength of stocks doesn't mean much. Uh, 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 most people own very, very few stocks, either directly or through mutual funds. Gary, one of the great charms of Gary Schilling is you've been exceptionally able on deflation, disinflation, lower yields, but you've always said be in the market. I have never, ever once heard you do the doom and gloom, go to cash. And here we are with markets, and you've been dead on on that as equities have elevated. So what do you do now? I mean, is it finally where Gary Schilling says go to cash? Well, not entirely, Tom, but in the portfolios we manage, we are heavier in cash than we've ever been. A percent? Uh, 50 percent. 50 percent in yeah. cash. And it really is simply the, the, the lack of movement in markets. The markets that at least I find the most difficult to invest in are sideways. If they're going in your favor, and I never invest against my fundamental convictions, what I think is they're going on in, a, uh, in terms of the economic right. themes and so on. If they're going in your favor, hey, that's wonderful. If they're going against you, you just say, I'm just not going to participate. Right. But if they're moving <clears throat> sideways, boy, that is treacherous because you're tempted to yeah. get in. You think things are moving. You get out. And I found the best thing to do is right. if you don't have distinct movements, you ought to have a big pile of cash. The Gary Schilling math, and you can do this when you're physics out of Amherst, is price up, yields lower. I get that. And if yields continue to drive Gary Schilling lower, there's a point where you, you, know, you wonder how much more can there be a capital gain? Do you assume full faith and credit bonds go to a premium pricing and you still get your Gary Schilling total return? Well, I, I don't think so. As you know, I've, I've uh, over a year ago, I said I thought we were going to 1% on the 10-year Treasury and 2% on the 30-year, on and I still think that that's valid. Now, do we go into negative rates in this country? I don't think so. You know, the Fed is basically uh, let the others run that grand experiment. They've let uh, the Bank of Japan, the ECB, the Swedish Reichsbank, et cetera, uh, Bank of, uh, Central Bank of Switzerland, these guys have gone into negative rates, and negative rates really haven't, haven't worked. If anything, they've encouraged people to save yeah. more and not to, and not to spend, not to borrow. And I think the Fed has just okay. sat back and said, we'll let them do it. And, we're not, and, and now they've concluded it doesn't work, and I think that's true in the, of the Bank of Japan as well. So right. I doubt that we're going there. And now negative. it's Physics Monday with Dr. Schilling. Gary, macroeconomics, which some would suggest you invented modern macroeconomics with Ed Hyman, among others. Maybe Bob Farrell would be there in there, too, on strategy. Um, Dr. Schilling, the basic idea is it's a one-mode American economy. It's a Gaussian economy. It's one over the square root of two pi. It's a simple formula everybody's known since time began. Are we in a bimodal America, a two Americas, in income, wages, education, technology, where the formulas that you helped invent don't work anymore? Yeah, well, they, they don't work temporarily. And I think that the basic cause, Tom, is globalization, which to me is the most important global economic in, in, in development in the last 30 years. And what it has done is it has speeded up the what is normally technological process. Uh, technology usually creates more jobs than it destroys. But when you transfer manufacturing largely from Europe and North America to China and other developing countries, you leave a huge, huge gap there. And I think this is principally responsible for this polarization right. of income and this mad-as-hell reaction. And, and Larry Summers with a fabulous review of Nick Eberstadt's book at AEI on 
the men of America, the male in America, and the underemployment. Gary, can we fix that by policy, or do we just have to give up and move those jobs? Well, there are others. Charles Murray, other I, I think, has, has done right. you know, his coming apart book. I don't know if you read, read that, but, but there's some marvelous uh, studies of this. And, of course, one of the things that we're seeing now is this uh, uh, use of drugs of, of basically unemployed white males who— who really just don't have any purpose in life. Uh, I, I think it's a transition period, and I'm not sure that there's an awful lot that can be done with policy. Yeah, retraining and so on, but how many of these people really have the incentive to get retrained, and how many of them have the capability? I mean, after all, mm. there are a lot of people who are twisting on bolts in Detroit and in and, and, and autos uh, who were way overpaid by, by uh, global standards, and the fact that, that those incomes disappeared, right. they don't understand it. <clears throat> You mentioned yields before. You reaffirm your 1% call on uh, interest rates on full faith and credit tenure. What's a Gary Schilling call on gold? Uh, I'm agnostic on gold. I, I've never really understood gold. The only thing you can say is that uh, if one mm -hmm. basic force pushes gold, it was inflation in the 70s. It may have been uh, distrust of paper currencies more recently. Uh, but, but uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a clear deal. The one thing you can say, though, Tom, is that you have conditions here that ought to be ideal for gold. Tremendous political uncertainty and zero carrying costs. And, of course, right. gold doesn't return anything, yeah. so carrying costs are very important. And you say, if gold isn't taking off now, there must be something else going on. And maybe it's the deflation that I've been forecasting. See how he got, John, did you see how in the last moment they're looking at the clock, Schilling got the shameless plug in there for his classic book, Deflation? See how he said he, he snuck uh, that in. I believe in. it's the age of uh, delunging. <clears throat> well, Tom goes. No, that's back the latest to, book. Oh, that's Tom the goes latest. back to one I wrote in 1998. Well, let's mention both deflation. of them. Yes. Okay. Why not? <laughs> Gary, well, thank Tom you so much. Tom usually shows that one on TV. Gary Schilling uh, uh, with us this morning, folks. And I really can't say enough. If you want to explain to your kids this word deflation. Gary wrote a book 20 years ago. It's, it's I call it the blue book. It's a paperback book. It's on all my lists. Light blue, dark blue called deflation. I can't say enough about it is the primer on price change. It is just absolutely uh, superb. Gary Schilling, hey, Gary Schilling. And again, uh, and again, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. I will not send out a Gary Schilling and Company's propaganda that they put together. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. I've really been looking forward to this. Ann Seltzer uh, is in Iowa, where she has a different view and a more informed view on polling away from the bubble of Washington and all of it. And, of course, out with the Bloomberg poll this morning. Ann, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Good to be with you. It, it's wonderful to talk to you. Is the central limit theorem in effect here, or is polling so screwed up the mathematics you learned at Kansas doesn't work? 
you know, I, 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 I choose to apply Newton's laws to this, which is for every action, is there an equal and opposite reaction? And, you know, when people see the poll this morning, it will surprise some of them because we're showing Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in a tie in our two-way race and with Trump actually a point yeah. ahead in our four-way race. So will that have an impact on the electorate? Will things spring back to the way they've been before? Or is this the beginning of a Trump role? What is the margin of error in how does it, folks, the margin of error is plus or minus, blah, blah, blah. It's always down at the bottom of the screen and no one talks about it. And that drives me insane. Give me the, well, what, what's the yeah. quality of margins of error? Well, we, d we have done a sample, a random sample, probability sample of 1,002 likely voters. For us, that means they say they will definitely vote in 2016. Where are they all? Gonna... Oh, stop. Are they all at a wrestling match in Iowa State? <laughs> well, not yet. The wrestling season hasn't started. They're just watching Iowa State lose in football week after week after week. But the, our margin of error, that means it's 3.1 plus or minus percentage points. It means if we did the same study 20 times, and believe me, we have asked Bloomberg if they'd like to do that, uh, 19 out of those times, the findings that we get would not vary from the numbers we're reporting by more than plus or minus 3.1 percentage points. And if you'll allow me, people often Please. want to make, use the margin of error to make a race closer. So they say, well, if it's within three points, that means it's really a tie. It is equally probable that the race could be wider using that same margin of error. So thank you for a little mm -hmm. soapbox to say don't overinterpret the margin of error. No, that's what we love having you on, folks. I, this drives me nuts. And for any of you math-afflicted, I, I mean, it's just incredible the uh, – Agnost math agnosticism. I don't know what the right John Tucker. What's the right phrase? I mean, Bob Moon does a STEM report for the New Jersey Institute of Technology, and polling is like the anti-STEM. I mean, today <laughs> it's like you know Trump this or Clinton that. Forget what, math. Focus on statistics. And help me here with the new trend, which is to aggregate everybody's work into an Uber poll. Do you do you like that math? Well, you know, it helps the math afflicted. That is, it gives them one number to look at instead of 17. The, the problem is, Tom, that it represents as though that average is what's true. And we did a little study after the Senate races in 2014 where we showed that final average in each of the swing state Senate races that we were looking at. And the margins were relatively narrow. That is, the expectation was by two points, three points, four points maybe. And when you look at the actual results, typically they, the, the actual margins were eight to ten points. That is, that, that average is always going to be, in our experience, more conservative of what the race really is. So that's why I don't like it, is that it seems to present truth and right. it's not. Nassim Taleb in quantitative finance is very big on skin in the game. The skin in the game for polls, pollsters, is the visibility that if you screw it up, particularly at the end of a race, no one forgets it. A number of people have messed up recent polls, whether Brexit or the previous election in the U.S., whatever. How are you practicing polling today different than you did four years ago because of that arch fear, your skin in the game, that you yeah. screw up. Well, I, I, what I have done is to escalate my, my amount of worry time because everything has gotten harder in ways that, that, that play against the pollster. 
fewer people who are willing to participate. Now, the Pew Research Center, which is a national treasure, says yes. to us, they'll do the study that, that tells us all, don't worry yet. For now, that for every person who won't answer our phone, they have a doppelganger who will answer just like they would answer if we had reached the other person. So we worry a lot about it. There are some that are moving to voter lists instead of doing random digit dialing, many are playing, experimenting really, with online polling, which is not a probability sample. And what that means is that each person who, is a, who will vote on election day has the same chance of being contacted for your poll. Well, if you've raised your hand and said, yes, I'll participate in your online panel, you've not been randomly selected. And are you like, you know, do you have a doppelganger? You know, that whole thing starts to fall apart. So um, I'm, I like to base on science. I like a probability sample. Just the way our world works, it's harder and harder. <clears throat> yeah. For now, we think we're okay. Okay. I mean, I don't know when polling started. You're going to tell me in a moment. But, you know, you're with Jefferson and, and, and Madison, and you're trying to get a poll on what the Federalists are doing up in New England in, you know, 1798 or 1802 yeah. or whatever. You had technology at hand. How has the modern technology affected you? Well, you know what? It wasn't until 1978 that the Des Moines Register, where I just start, got started in uh, a lot of polling here in Iowa, they were going door to door until 1978, and I'm sure that that's what they were doing in New York City when they were all worried about the, what was going to happen with creating a new constitution. Um, they just do it the same way. Uh, so the telephone is relatively simple, but keep in mind, when we first were working with telephones, if I knew your phone number... I pretty much knew where you lived. You only had one phone number for your whole household, so I knew, I, again, I, could, I sort of had access to you as a sampling unit in ways that we just don't have. People have phone numbers living in New York that they brought from California. We don't know where you live when we look at your phone number. Um, there's, there are just many other yeah. issues that won't bore your listenership, but oh, it's yeah. harder and harder, and I just worry more. What, what is the distinction now? between polling of popular vote and polling of electoral vote or the calculus of electoral vote math? That is such a great question. It's my only good our... one today. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I am so done. I've allocated my good questions to Michael McKee. What are you on, Mike, like 18 hours today? Uh, 17 and a half. <laughs> okay. There you go. Well, you know, we've just done a national poll. Why do we do it? Because it gives you a sense of the mood of the electorate overall. But we don't elect a president with a national poll. So two weeks ago, Bloomberg Politics released a poll of the state of Ohio, which is one of the great battleground states. And we showed a Trump lead there, which was, uh, again, uh, we were the first poll to come out and say, look, this looks like it's going for Trump. And I think it was five or six points. I don't have that right in front of me. But not a small lead, not a tie. It looked like Ohio at that point in time was going for uh, Donald Trump. Well, well that changes the, but the way and, the electoral votes are going to fall. So very important. Right. We're talking with Ann Selzer from uh, Ann Selzer uh, and Company. And she is the pollster who put together the latest Bloomberg uh, politics survey that shows Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton tied. I want to go... Um, I want to put this in terms of a poll. If you got a few moments to answer some questions, uh, I want to go in, in, deeper into some of the um, uh, some of the numbers down below. And uh, my first question, when I look at these sorts of things, is 
what is the undecided vote, or were you able to tease that out? In other words, we have a debate tonight. We're going to have another month and a half of invective and uh, and criticism and commercials and stuff like that. But how many people are persuadable at this point, Anne? You know, it's relatively low when we ask people who your first choice is. And then if they say they're undecided, we push them a little bit and say, well, which way do you lean? Um, it's relatively low, the number of people who say, I still haven't made up my mind. I think what the, the thing that is invisible in the poll, which is probably changing more, are people who are deciding today, yeah, I feel like I'm going to vote. I've always voted. I'm going to vote. And then the next day they'll say, you know what, I'm so turned off by this. I just think I'll feel better <laughs> if I stay home. So you have a moving electorate, and that part is, is, can be invisible in the poll. We, we actually gather some data on the people we talk to who don't qualify to be, as a likely voter in our screen, but we get, a, we get a little bit of more information. What are they demographically? And this time, for the first time, we said, well, if you were going to vote, who would you vote for? And Hillary Clinton led with that group by about 10 or 11 points, I think. Well, that gets to depth of support and turnout. Yes. Is there any way that you can measure or get an impression of how many people are going to voluntarily go to the polls or whether Donald Trump has to really drive his people to go do more than say they support him, which gets to the issue of who has the ground game, et cetera? Well, we know that the ground game is what uh, made 2012 a victory for Barack Obama, that they had such a mach- an aggressive machine that if they figured you were an Obama voter, they worked diligently to get an absentee vo- b- ballot in your hand to drive you to early voting. And once you've voted, get you, recruit you to start working for the campaign to go get more votes. Um, and all the way through Election Day, just a very detailed precision uh, cut there in terms of getting their voters out. Um, of the two candidates, Hillary Clinton would have invested more in that kind of thing. It, it, it is to her advantage to have a big turnout because the people who are kind of holding out are, tend to be more her supporters, younger people, um, minority populations that have been voting Democratic for a long time. We just don't know what the Trump organization has in mind for that, because they don't appear to be investing themselves in that kind of machinery. Um, the, the Republican National Committee will, of course, be helpful. It's helpful to Republican candidates across the country. I'm guessing one of the reasons that Trump is doing well in Ohio, where we polled a couple of weeks ago, is because they have a very popular Republican governor, and the Republican candidate for U.S. Senate is doing very well. So that state may already be organizing for a Republican turnout um, that the Democrats will have mm. a hard time matching. The uh, the other question I would have is, um, as you poll, uh, we have early voting nowadays and, and, and spread to more and more states. I know you've already got 3% of the people saying they voted already. Yeah. A- at yeah. what point can you or can you ever, uh, in the lead up as you poll to the actual election day, get an idea of how turnout is from early voting? Well, I don't know that that early voting number by itself tells you. Um, it certainly tells you the strength of the machine. Uh, again, the, the turnout machine and getting people to show up. 
uh, here in Iowa, it's not uncommon for early voting to account for 30, sometimes 40 percent of the vote. It is a much stronger tradition on the Democratic side to push for early voting. Republicans tend to want to vote on Election Day or they're not pushed mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to vote early. But, but when we separate out the people who've already mm -hmm. voted from the people who say they will vote in the future, we always see a strong, I mean, we'll, we'll get a, a very good idea looking at that cross-tab mm -hmm. as that group grows as to what's happening with the race. Ann Seltzer, thank you so much for coming on with us, and thank you for the integrity of your work. Ann Seltzer, on polling, of course, she does the Bloomberg poll, and uh, we really take pride on trying to make it mathematically uh, better than good. Jack Bogle with us uh, right now with Vanguard and, of course, all of his work over the years. How are you, sir? I am well, thank you, Tom. I look at the ascendance of passive funds, and I guess on a calculus basis, this is something you studied a few years ago, there's a limit. There's a limit to how much money can move this way or that way. Have we reached the limit on money movement towards index funds? No, that's actually a long way away. The, the, I think the relevant limit, no, the limits to indexing, you know, could the market work at 60% indexing, 70% yeah. indexing? I don't see why not. Uh, you know, the market now turns over at, uh, I think it's around 250% a year. And when I came into this business, Tom, in, 19, in the early 1950s, the, the market turnover was 25%. So um, if half of that, the, the market that's turning over at 250% now is indexed, it would just drop to 225%. That's plenty of volume. Yeah. Trading is, of course, yeah. the investor's enemy because one side of the trade wins and the other side loses. We never know which mm -hmm. one. But the man in the middle always makes money. So um, the more you trade, the more you lose, the more Main Street loses yeah. to Wall Street is the way I would put it. If we are lower for longer, which seems to be a consensus opinion, how do bond funds make money? Don't they all have to migrate to the Vanguard uh, annual fee? I mean, just by definition, because the coupon is so low? I think the role of low cost in the markets we face, both the stock market and the bond market, much lower returns than we've had historically, are going to put much more pressure on these high-cost mutual funds, which is, of course, most of the mutual fund industry. The costs are just... Outrageous, really, um, and uh, not just the expense ratios, Tom. Which you know, the, it's around one percent for the average fund, a little bit lower if you weight it by assets, and a little bit higher if you weight it fund by fund. But uh, yeah. compared to, and then and then you add in the portfolio turnover costs. The mutual funds turn over their their active mutual funds turn over their portfolios at a very high rate, and that's probably another fifty, seventy-five basis points. So you're almost at two percent. In sunk cost, that's too much. And the index fund yeah. takes out the trading cost and can operate for most investors. If you've got more than $10,000, right. at least here at Vanguard, for five basis points, five one hundredths of one percent. Mike, I'm looking at the expense ratio of the Vanguard total bond market fund versus another famous actively managed fund. And on a, in a bond investment, it's exactly 
uh, 70 basis points, seven-tenths of a percentage point. So if your gross coupon, I mean, when your gross coupon was 5%, you didn't care. But now your gross coupon is 2 or 3%, and you care. That is exactly yeah. correct. Did I do the math okay? I, I, I guess yep, I, I did okay for myself. Well. Congratulations. Go to the head of the class. Good. Well, uh, well no dunce cap for him. I didn't realize, uh, Jack, that um, it's uh, basically been 50 years here since, uh, or 40 years since. Uh, you started this whole thing. It was August 31st, 1976. You launched the Vanguard 500 Index Fund? That's correct. We missed the, the actual anniversary, but uh, Washington Post wrote it up recently, noting that uh, one of the innovations was that uh, you could lower costs because you weren't trying to make a big profit on it. The, the we don't make any go, profit, the, actually. The returns go back into the funds themselves. It's just, it's just what it is, is we operate at cost. And other people do not. So if you take that presumed profit margin that they have around 50 basis points, uh, you're going to be at least 50 basis points ahead with us. And it turns out to be more like 75. And why has it, uh, I mean, it's catching on now, obviously, become a big deal. But why, why was it slow? Uh, what's the myth of the myth of the, the active uh, investor that you, you have trouble fighting? Well, the truth, what you have is this, this giant marketing system that the mutual fund industry works through with sometimes RIAs, sometimes stockbrokers, and uh, they can always find a large number of funds that have done better than the S&P 500, a large number of stock funds. And uh, they don't necessarily tell the client that, that we have, if you've, been, if you've been number one this year, uh, you're not going to be number one next year. If you've been number one for the last 10 years, you're certainly not going to be number one. Maybe maybe more like number, uh, say, 100 out of 100 or 80 out of 100 in the next 10 years. There's, there's this thing we've talked about before, Tom, the reversion to the mean. And uh, that's that's what happens to mutual funds. That's what happens to stocks in a large way. And uh, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, to give you a little biblical quote there. John Bogle with us, of course, Jack Bogle. Uh, with the, as Mike McKee mentions, the 50-year anniversary of uh, Vanguard. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.